Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts, that we would hear your voice, your intention for us. Lord, draw us close to yourself. Amen. I love how Trinity Sunday pulls together Genesis 1 and Matthew 28. I love how Matthew 28 answers and completes Genesis 1. And that's actually what I want to talk about with you all this morning. But in order to see that completion of Genesis 1 in Matthew 28, we need to sort of trace through quickly the themes of Genesis 1. You look at Genesis 1 and what you see is that out of chaos and darkness and void, God creates order. God creates beauty. God creates life. He pulls out of nothing the glory and the beauty that we see all around us. But he has a purpose for this. He has something in mind. It's not just a random act of kindness or creativity. God's desire for this has to do with us. And so he creates people, men and women who look like him. It's important perhaps self-evident, but still important to say that we look like him, not physically. God is pure spirit and has no form. We look like him in the capacities that he's given us, the role that he's given us, the way that he calls us to act and operate towards one another and towards him. But his purpose for this creation is to take image bearers, people, you and me, and to have them fill his creation out every last little corner, and govern it in his name. Take care of it for him. Be his viceroys, little reflections of God at every end of the earth, shepherding that bit of creation that they've been given for blessing, for life, for beauty, the way that he would have. When God did this, he takes these people that he's created, these image bearers who are meant to bring his blessing in life to the very ends of the earth. He takes these image bearers and he blesses them. And he blesses them with the things that they will need for this task, with fruitfulness, the ability to fill the earth. He blesses them with authority. He actually gives them the means that they need to fill creation with little images of God. He gives them what they need to fill creation with God's authority to participate in God's act of creation. And he says, go and do this. Fill the earth. Shepherd it. Make it beautiful. Be like me. Bring life out of nothingness. Bring beauty out of chaos. And he gives us the authority and the means as under-governors or as viceroys to go do this, as sub-creators. If you ever wonder why, we have this tendency to constantly be seeking beauty, to constantly be longing for justice, to be wanting good governance and right politics. Why we have this tendency to create parks, to create cathedrals, to write symphonies, to paint paintings, to sculpt sculptures. If you wonder why humanity alone of all the creatures is constantly striving after these things and seeking to do them. It all flows out of this way that God created us and why he created us. To be P 
people carrying his authority to be sub-creators under him, governing the earth, protecting it, filling it with beauty. All of these tendencies that we have spring from why we were made. Even when they are distorted, and they are distorted so oftentimes, even when those tendencies are distorted, they reflect the reason why God created us. We see something very important in verses 27 and 28. In God's design, this calling was not just for a man or a woman, or for men or for women. Instead, this blessing and fruitfulness and even the authority over all of creation is intrinsically linked to their union together. Let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them. That our ability to do what we've been called into is linked to the intrinsic union. God's image is not displayed through man or woman, but instead through man and woman together. Male and female, he created them. Two creatures who were, and we all laugh at this, both alike, but totally unlike one another, who together can reflect the image of God. In their union, who can actually do something that neither could do alone, neither sufficient to be this image-bearing sub-creator ruling over creation in God's name, neither sufficient alone, but working together to rule creation and fill it with God's image. As an aside, and I guess I don't have too much time for too many asides today, but as an aside, if you've ever wondered why we aren't supposed to create idols, why we're not supposed to create images of God, it's very simply because God has already chosen the image that he deems appropriate. And it's us. If that doesn't startle you and stagger you and humble you, it should. We don't create images because he's already chosen to create an image of himself. That's staggering. If you ever wonder why God doesn't show up and do more physical miracles on a more frequent basis in creation, it's because his design for us is to be the ones taking care of creation and using it to bless and feed and heal others. We are the ones supposed to be manipulating the stuff that we've been given to do this work of life and goodness and beauty. If you ever wonder why marriage from God's perspective is always the union of man and woman, it's because it takes these two creatures who are alike and yet unalike to fully reveal the image of God. Fruitfulness only comes from the union of the two of them. This is the picture that we're given in Genesis 1. And if you've ever read any of the ancient myths that depict other creation narratives, you'll be startled at how different this is. The ancient myths depicted creation as being sort of the aftershock of a war between the gods, this nasty thing that just happened. Or they depict man being created to be the slave of the gods, to feed him because the gods were perpetually hungry. They depict woman as being a halfway formed man, not quite there. If you look at those ancient myths, you'll realize that what Genesis depicts is totally different. If you read the modern myths, you'd come to the same conclusion. Modern myths that say it's just a random chance and an accident, and there is no purpose in it except for the purpose that we create. Genesis cuts across all of those stories and offers a very different perspective. The truth is astounding and beautiful. That God said, look at this beautiful thing that I've created. 
Now go shepherd it in my name. Go take care of it and fill it with beauty. Fill it with more images of God so that the whole thing sings in praise and glory and life. Yet we all know the story. We've actually failed incredibly at this calling. We failed in perhaps every way that we could at this calling. Our failure touches every part of our existence. It touches every part of our identity. It touches every part of our identity. Instead of a creation filled with God's image, we are constantly at war with one another, violence and idolatry through and through, seeking to destroy the image of God in others, seeking to extinguish it, worshiping anything but the God who created us, perverting the image of God in ourselves, distorting it into other forms. Instead of shepherding creation to bless and give life to others, we look at it as just simply stuff that we can use to get for ourselves, to increase our own wealth, pleasure, status, using it as a means of growing ourselves great, never considering that we were supposed to shepherd it the way God would have shepherded it, for the blessing of others and for beauty and for joy. Instead of man and woman together reflecting God together in this union, acting like him in their union, there's a long history of domination and abuse and manipulation and unfaithfulness and brokenness. We failed miserably at this reason that we were created. The thing that we were called to from the very beginning, the Genesis mandate, we failed in every place we could and in every way that we could, and it touches every part of our experience. All of us are complicit in this failure. Not a single one of us can say, I have shepherded creation the way that God called me to, and I've treated the image of God the way that God called me to. But the beauty of Matthew 28, and this is what I mean by the fact that Matthew 28 answers Genesis 1, the beauty of Matthew 28 is that God was not stymied by our failure. His plan was not prevented by our sin. Matthew 28 shows us that the calling and the blessing were not actually lost. We see in Matthew 28 how we can actually still be fruitful to the very ends of the earth, how we can still fill the entire earth with the image of God. Here we see how the image of God is actually restored, restored in baptism, restored in obedience to the words of Jesus himself. Here we see the restoration, the creation mandate, God's purpose. We see in Matthew 28 that it still holds, that God wasn't hamstrung. He wasn't scrambling to figure out what to do. He saw our failure, and through that failure, he saw redemption that was even more glorious than what might have been. And the mandate still holds. Here we see Jesus Christ saying, all authority has been given to me. He's standing as the new Adam, claiming that authority that was offered to Adam and Eve and lost because of their sin and saying all of that authority over all of God's creation has been given to me. We see here the true human, the only true human, the only image bearer in perfection, the only icon without flaw or perversion. Here we see what humanity was to have been 
And here we see him saying, and the authority is mine. The creation mandate is coming true. When he says to his disciples, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you, we see here God undoing the false teaching in the lives of the serpent. All that false teaching that winds its way through our history and our societies and our very hearts. False teaching that we have believed, that we have propagated. And Jesus is unraveling it, pulling it apart, saying, I offer the truth again. When Jesus calls his church, calls his bride into existence, we see what the original pattern revealed. The original pattern of the union of two things, both like and unlike each other. Jesus totally unlike us in his perfection and his godness, and yet willing to become like us in his humility and his condescension. And in this one who is both like us and unlike us, only like us because of his humility and grace, in this one uniting himself to us, in Christ uniting himself, the new Adam to the new Eve, we see in this union the potential for fruitfulness again. The potential for the earth to be filled with the image of God again. We see in this union children born into the kingdom, new births, fully bearing the image of God, washed clean of the failure and the sin. We see in this the fulfillment of that original pattern. This, by the way, is why Paul says that he wishes all were as he was, single. That may feel like a weird aside, but I think it's important. In the creation mandate, we see that authority and fruitfulness in God's design only comes through the union of man and woman. But startlingly in Genesis, I mean in Matthew 28, we see that it's the union that the church has with Christ that supersedes that. That the true fruitfulness is the fruitfulness that comes from Christ in the church. And that union is the more important one. Those children born there are the more important ones. And so therefore, Paul can say, I wish there were more people who united themselves to nothing but Christ in his church to bring about this fruitfulness to the ends of the world. In this, we see this glorious, newer and greater union that makes our marriages seem like just a shadow. Paul acknowledges that the marriages and the children born to them are very gifts from God, but they are forerunners to the greater gift to come. Enough of that aside. Matthew 28 is the fulfillment of Genesis 1. It's the fulfillment of what Genesis 1 can only depict in part. It's also the answer to Genesis 3. How is God going to do this thing that he's commanded us to do if we rebel against him? And Matthew 28 answers that. It's the beginning of the answer where we see all that we need to see there to realize that God's purposes still will come true. If he wasn't stymied by our rebellion, Jesus' words go to the end of the earth, make disciples, they won't be stymied by our failure either. It's this beautiful picture of the fact that God was not hamstrung by us and his purposes still continue. If someone says, God, what will you do if your humanity refuses to obey? Very simply, he says, my son will become the true human and he will obey. He will obey. And then those who would receive him, we will give the spirit of life and draw them into this union so that they too could begin to obey with us in this. 
I love how Matthew 28 fulfills, completes, and answers Genesis. It's actually astounding to me, and this is really the thing that gripped my attention this week. It's astounding to me that in this picture, the new Eve is broken. The new Eve, the church, is broken in Matthew 28. How many showed up? There were 11. 12 is the number of completion in the Bible. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. And yet there were only 11 there. The new Eve was incomplete. And what do we read of some of them? That some doubted, some wavered. They were an incomplete people, a wavering people. This new Eve was anything but strong and important. It's important at this moment to take a like, three-second detour to an important theological principle. And the theological principle is that every Christian is a microcosm of the church. That means that what we can generally say about the church, we can say about the individual. My point in that three-second detour is very simply that every single one of us is incomplete and wavering as well. What we see in Matthew 28 is an incomplete band of disciples coming to Jesus with wavering and doubting in their hearts even as they worship. And what this very beginning of the church depicts is exactly what is true of each and every one of us. Each of us is 11-ish, not quite complete. And each of us has wavering and doubting even as we worship. We experience these things. We feel these things. We know these things. We feel the dead spots in our hearts where there is a missing fullness, where there's something that's been cut off, something that's broken, maybe even something that, like Judas, betrayed Christ himself and is now dead because of that betrayal. We feel that incompleteness and brokenness, the lonelinesses and the anxieties and the shames that we can't seem to escape. We feel the wavering, where even as we worship, we wonder, does God really actually love me? Does he care? Where we wonder, is he even real? Is Jesus actually alive? Each of us is 11-ish and wavering like this little band of disciples. One of the things that I love about Matthew 28 is its honesty. It's honesty. It's a group of incomplete people with wavering in their hearts who show up to be united to Christ. Just as each of us is an incompletion with wavering in our hearts, even as we long to be united to Christ, but Jesus doesn't chide or reprimand their remaining 11 wavering disciples. He doesn't say to them, go back when you filled in the ranks. Go back when you're complete. Come back when you're complete. He doesn't say to them, come back when your faith is full. The thing that's beautiful, and this is verse 18 of Matthew 28, the thing that's beautiful is when 11 approach and some are even doubting, Matthew 18 says, and Jesus came and said to them. He doesn't say, come back when you've got it figured out. Instead, he steps close to them. He approaches them. Remember, every Christian, a microcosm of the church. That means when we approach in our incompleteness, he doesn't say, come back when you get it together. Instead, he approaches. He steps close. 
And when they show up in their doubt, he doesn't say, come back when you're strong in your faith. Instead, he speaks to them, speaks just as he would to each of us if we were willing to wait and listen and patience and faith, wavering faith, little bit of faith, mustard seed faith. He steps close and he speaks to this wavering 11. The honesty of Matthew 28 is important because we all know this incompleteness and waveringness. We know it in our families. We know it in our church. We know it in our small groups and the relationships we have. We see the broken places and the things that we can't seem to fix and get together. Ultimately, we all know it most of all in the depths of our own heart, where we know the dead spots and the things that we cannot heal. And yet, in the honesty of Matthew 28, in this new union, Jesus simply steps close. And he speaks. The reality is, is that the creation mandate never rested upon us to begin with. God calls us in our waveringness and our incompleteness because the burden was never actually on our shoulders to begin with. It's true that we were called to participate and we were called to obey. And it's true that we were blessed with the ability to actually be with him in this act of creation and shepherding and blessing of the world. Those things are true. But all along, and this is straight Genesis 1, it's the word of God and the word of God alone that brings life out of nothing. It's the word of God and the word of God alone that can create in us a living heart. It's the word of God and the word of God alone that can heal and restore and do what we're called to do. The point is, is that the burden does not rest upon our shoulders. And so Jesus can call imperfect, wavering, incomplete people and say, join me in this without his work being threatened by our inadequacy. His work is not threatened by our inadequacy because it's his work and not ours. It's the spirit who gives life. It's the father who calls people to the son. It's the son, the new Adam, who bears the authority of this task itself. The triune God is not threatened by us being less than perfect. And so when we show up with trembling hearts, feeling very broken and incomplete, Jesus says, it's okay. Still go in my name. Still go. He's not threatened by our incompleteness. The burden is on the triune God and not us. And so we can say yes to this mandate. We can say yes to it because it is not a weight on our shoulders, but instead a restoration of all dignity that we were to have had Dignity that was lost. Joy to participate with God in this, even while knowing that we don't need to figure everything out and fix it all. We have been approached and spoken to by the one who does know how to do these things. Jesus is the one who conquers death. And so when he comes to us and says, go to the ends of the earth, even in spite of our wavering, even in spite of our incompletion, we can joyfully obey. As we turn to his table, as we pray, as we confess our sins, worship with me the Lord, who is the perfect image of God, the one who brings life out of death. Worship with me the very Son of God, the new Adam, who became like us on our behalf, even though he was totally other than us. Worship Jesus with me. Amen.